Welcome to Health and Veritas. I'm Harlan Krumholtz. And I'm Howie Foreman. We are physicians and professors at Yale University. We're trying to get closer to the truth about health and healthcare. This week, we will be speaking with Dr. Utibe Essien. But first, what's got your attention this week, Harlan? Yeah, thanks, Howie. Uh, great to see you again. The This week, I wanted to just make a note of this preprint that came out this week. Of course, you know, preprints are articles that have been written, being submitted often to journals, but in the period of time when they're being reviewed, are being posted publicly so that people can see them and understand the progress of science. And this is on MedArchive, and as you know, it's a preprint server that I co-founded with Joe Ross and and others. And, uh, you know, I, I think it's helped speed speed science for discussion. And today, they, a group called the Active Six posted an NIH trial on a, on a drug, uh, fluvoxamine, that is a drug that's been used for obsessive compulsive disorder, but found its way into discussions about the treatment of COVID. And I bring this up because this is why we do the research. You, you know, in the midst of a pandemic, but actually in everyday medicine, People are coming in and said, I've heard this works. I've heard that works. People want to try all sorts of different things. You have me already so interested in this because I remember about a year and a half ago, Florida was touting this. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. And and so and it just came out of nowhere. I mean, people just start saying, you know, we should take this. So people may have heard about SSRI uh, inhibitors. Uh, SSRIs are inhibitors of the serotonin reuptake. Uh, the I is actually inhibitor. And uh, these have been approved for a wide variety of mental health uh, problems. And like I said, uh, this one for the treatment of obsessive compulsive disorder and a, a few psychiatric conditions, including social anxiety and depression. But, you know, somebody started digging in and saying, well, you know, this activates a certain receptor, which may decrease inflammation and maybe it down regulates expression of inflammatory genes. That's a whole bunch of language just to say that maybe there's something here that modulates our defense system that might be useful in patients who are acutely ill with COVID-19. And then so there were a whole bunch of, uh, of activity and like you said, proclamations. And then there were some, some smaller studies outside the United States that were, you know, maybe trying to, you know, look at this and, and to make some determination and even found some promising data. But this NIH study was rigorous uh, and, and relatively rapid. It was a decentralized study. So it's one of these studies where people didn't need to come into the hospital, but they enrolled, were screened, and sent the medications to take at once they tested positive. And then, you know, they went and saw what happens. And in the end, they had about uh, almost 1,300 people that were 30 years and older with confirmed COVID-19 who were having two or more symptoms of the acute infection less than uh, and within seven days. You know, they wanted to treat them relatively rapidly. So within a week, they were randomized to receive uh, fluvoxamine, 50 milligrams, or placebo, twice a day for, for 10 days. And what they wanted to see was, what was the time to sustained recovery? And that was really three days. They wanted to see how long did it take you to get three days without symptoms. So, you know, they, they went through this. The mean age of people were was 48, 57% were, were women. And, and the median time to recovery was 13 days. I thought this was interesting in its own right, Howie. Because so these are people who got kind of sick. They had the two symptoms. They weren't feeling well. And it took almost two weeks for them to feel better. I actually have people that tell me, you know, hey, I'm still feeling sick after a week. How normal is that? And, you know, if you see in this trial, again, they were looking for people who were symptomatic. But it, it, the median time, ha only that means more than half the people took more than two weeks before 
they actually fully recovered. But da, 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 the bottom line of the trial was, what do you think? I'm always a skeptic about everything, so I would have thought it doesn't work. But I, but I want to say for our audience that the when Florida touted this, I did a little research on my own, and the few observational studies that were out there were fairly compelling, but they were observational and subject to the same biases that we've seen with so many things. So I'm, I'm skeptical that it works, but I'd love to hear that it does, because it would be a relatively cheap way of, of preventing it. It would be a good and cheap way, and how, how lucky if it would have worked, but the median time to recover was 13 days in the placebo group and 12 days in the fluoxamine group, and that was close enough, given the uncertainty around those estimates, to say really no evidence of benefit that didn't work here. So, you know, another another touted drug, you know, lots of people heard about hydroxychloroquine and, you know, the whole range of other kinds of things that people were, ivermectin, other things, you know, but in this case... This, this one also got a lot of attention early on, and a lot of people took it, but that no real evidence in this trial of benefit. So kudos to the team. Uh, it was run out of Duke and had lots of people from lots of different highfalutin institutions which was, and uh, funded by the NIH. And I think it's one that uh, you know we can, we can believe is, is strong evidence. I'm really glad they did it. I mean, look, with ivermectin and hydroxychloroquine, we had lots of small trials and lots of epidemiologic studies, but it's been hard to get these types of large-scale trials going, and, and I'm glad to see they did it and that they published it, or at least in the process of doing so. And I think we're learning how to be more rapid cycle about these trials. There's a lot of pressure to think, how can we be agile and, and quick and efficient? And I think we're making some progress in that way. we got a long way to go still, but but I'm optimistic too, and I'm happy that they, they did it. So, okay, Howie, let's, let's get on to our guest. I'm delighted to welcome Dr. Tibe Essien to the podcast. He is an assistant professor of medicine at the University of Pittsburgh and a researcher at the Center for Health Equity Research and Promotion of the VA Pittsburgh Healthcare System. Dr. Essien's research focuses on racial and ethnic disparities in healthcare, specifically studying the disparities in novel medications focusing on treatments in cardiovascular diseases. He is passionate about health equity and diversity, serving as the director of the University of Pittsburgh's Career, Education, and Enhancement for Healthcare Research Diversity, CEED, Medical Student Scholars Program. He holds many awards, including being recognized in the 30 Leaders Under 40, Transforming Healthcare from Business Insider in 2020, and the Association of American Medical Colleges Herbert W. Nickens Award in 2021. He received his medical degree from the Albert Einstein College of Medicine and has a Master of Public Health from Harvard School of Public Health. He completed his residency in internal medicine at the Mass General Hospital and Harvard Medical School. So first, welcome to the Health and Veritas podcast. You, you coined the term pharmacoequity, and, and that was to mean, I'm paraphrasing a tiny bit, all patients, regardless of race, class, or availability of resources, should have access to the highest quality evidence-based medical therapy indicated for their condition. But this is not where we are now. Your research into atrial fibrillation has demonstrated vastly different treatment based on race in a population treated in the VA healthcare system. Can you tell us a little bit about how this study was carried out and why it is so important to this area? Yeah, well, first of all, thank you so much, uh, Howie and Harlan, for having me. I'm really excited to 
uh, be joining you all. Um, yes, Pharmaco Equity is, is really the, the focus of my work. It has been for uh, last eight, eight, nine years or so since I was a med student starting down the, the health equity pathway. Um, and like you alluded to, the condition that kind of decided to plant my flag in as a general internist was atrial fibrillation, just um, experiences from patients in clinic uh, as well as in the hospital who were really having a tough time on um, at that point, when I was in my training, the um, kind of traditional standard of care medication is warfarin for um, preventing strokes in that condition. And so atrial fibrillation, for folks who are not as familiar, is uh, an irregular heart rhythm. It can cause strokes, um, which is the most common um, kind of negative complication of that condition. Um, and also just has your heart feeling fluttered and um, funny. And so... Uh, to prevent strokes, we have a class of medications called blood thinners. Um, and warfarin uh, or coumadin, you may have heard of it referred to as is kind of the old school traditional therapy. Um, but right as I was coming into residency, there is a new class of medication available uh, called direct oral anticoagulants. I'll call them DOACs during our conversation today. Um, and those medications have really kind of changed the game in helping to prevent strokes. They're easier to use. They're more effective. Um, but they're super expensive. And so over the last several years, including in our VA study that you alluded to, Howie, um, I really tried to understand why and what, what are some of the drivers of disparities in the use of those medications um, to really hopefully try and fix uh, disparities in outcomes in patients with atrial fibrillation, which sadly we see that black patients, for example, have about a two times higher risk of stroke and two times higher risk of death if they're diagnosed with atrial fibrillation. And so in our VA research study, which I'll share a little bit more on, we found that black patients were about 15% less likely to get um, the newer blood thinner medications, those DOAC drugs that I referred to earlier. Um, but this is way beyond the VA. We saw that finding in a registry that we conducted back in 2018, where the difference in a national US-based study was 25%. Um, we also found it in 2020 in a Medicare study, um, where again, similarly around 25%. And we have a, a new study, Hot Off the Press, is coming out next week um, that sadly shows a really similar finding. So um, we have a lot of work to do. As you alluded to, pharmacal equity is not a goal that we've achieved and succeeded at, uh, and I'm excited to, to keep uh, exploring this question with my colleagues here. You know, you've, you've emerged as a real leader in this area, and, and, and I say this with great admiration. You know, you've, you've really put not done the science, you've done the science, but you've also gone and, and ensured that people hear the message and are spreading the word. And, and it's a little bit of a variation on the kind of words people have heard before, but it's an unfortunate same song, you know, of this these differences. In some countries, they've established, well, the WHO established essential medications. And in some countries, even China, they've identified medications that they said no one should have to, to pay for. What about this country? I mean, I see so many situations where there are highly effective medications that are inaccessible to people, that, that they just require too much of their financial resources and they just can't stretch to do it. And so it it pains me because it's sort of this is truly the structural racism of our society. I mean, we've got a situation where we we are creating these structural barriers. So we know the right thing to do. We know that people will do better if they're on certain regimens and they simply can't get there. And so what should we do? I mean, what how can we start to mount an effort to say 
for medicines that beyond a shadow of a doubt have been shown to be beneficial, everyone should have a, a right to access. Yeah, it's such a great question, Harlan. I mean, um, first of all, kind of um, acknowledging the point you made around structural racism. Folks might say, well, that word is being tossed around so much over the last few years. Like, what does that really mean? Does that really have anything to do with medications? It's expensive for everyone, you know? Um, but I think the point is important to emphasize because here in the U.S., for example, focusing on Black Americans here, Black Americans have 5% of the wealth of white Americans in the U.S., 5%. And so you can imagine what that looks like when you have to pay for housing, you have to pay for food, you have to pay for, on top of that, the medications that the three of us are prescribing for our patients to treat uh, diabetes, to treat atrial fibrillation, to treat heart failure. And that bill just keeps rising up higher and higher. And again, some patients are having to make this decision of, am I going to pay for uh, childcare today? Or am I going to pay for this drug that my doc said I need to take to help prevent downstream complications of this weird condition he told me or that I have? And so unless we really acknowledge, deal with, fix this fact that medications are just incredibly too expensive for our patients, we're really not going to be able to address broadly health equity, which is something, uh, as you alluded to, Howie, I'm really passionate about. Um, so I do want to emphasize that structural racism point. What should we do, right? Like there was a study published just this week that showed that incredible amount of Americans, about one in six or so with diabetes, are having to ration their insulin. And insulin, I think, is a really important example because that's a medication you literally can't live without when you have um, diabetes, especially type 1 diabetes. Um, and that study showed that one in four of these individuals who are black were rationing their medications. And so we have to put caps on uh, the cost of medications that continue to rise in cost. Um, and as you said, Harlan, I think we have to think really deeply about eliminating co-payments for medications. We've seen studies that showed that either the elimination or the reduction in the cost of co-payments help to actually improve use and adherence. Um, and until we actually make some bold decisions to do that, unfortunately, we're going to have the same conversation that we're having today in 10, 20, 30 years. One of the other things I learned from you uh, in preparation for today was just how much underrepresentation of people of color in clinical trials also affects our ability to achieve pharmacoequity. I, I wonder if you could speak a little bit about that. Uh, to our audience and explain why that is the case and why it matters. Yeah, absolutely. So when I think about pharmacoequity, I do think about the kind of therapeutic continuum, as I like to call it. So from the first day that genius future Nobel Prize winner um, discovers a drug in her lab, um, all the way to our grandmother picking up the medication from the pharmacy. Uh, and that long process includes uh, clinical trials. So the studying of these newer medications that are just fancy algorithms and names that don't even have a new name when we pick them up in the pharmacy. Um, and so why does that matter? Why does representation matter? I think first of all, it means that patients are able to have early access to these therapies. And so in the early stages of clinical trials, um, patients who have um, potentially rare, potentially uh, deadly conditions are able to have access to newer discovery, newer therapies that could potentially help them. Um, and the more and more patients have access to those therapies, the more they can tell their community members, their family members, their friends about the drugs that are available. And I think have more trust in the science, the 
phrase that we've used so we've heard used so often over the last two years trust the science hard to trust it when you've never even heard of something until it comes out to you in the pharmacy so i think that's one point the second is that a lot of uh, our history here in the U.S. has been based on experimentation around science. And sadly, that experimentation has been experienced by underrepresented racial and ethnic group members. I think the more we encourage, the more we support um, individuals from underrepresented backgrounds to join in, in clinical trials and to discover along with us, the more we're going to be able to move from an experimentation model to actually working together to improve healthcare outcomes. And to be able to understand what are some of the barriers to taking uh, complicated medications, whether it's, you know, I can't come into the office every month to get a monthly injection for XYZ medication because of the life that I lead, or, you know, twice a day pills aren't really working for me. I actually need a once a day pill. And I think understanding some of the social challenges that our patients have and community members have with taking therapies. Those are some of the things that we can start to really study in clinical trials. But if those trials are consistently patients who have money, who can take time off of jobs, who work on a Zoom call like we're on today, um, that it's going to be really hard to be able to have these newer therapies um, be adherent when our patients take them down the road. So those are a few of the, the themes I kind of think about around the clinical trial representation piece. Yeah, those are very important. Let me break off into an, another direction, and I want to get your thought about this. You know, th this gets back to this issue of of structural racism, the way our our society is organized. I mean, let's just say out loud, you know, race is a social construct. I mean, it's about identifying a group of individuals based simply on their outward appearance and 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 trying to you know sort of clutch them. And the biological correlates of this are, you know, you know this well. I'm just saying this out loud for the for the podcast are, you know, weak if they exist at all in, in most people. And, and yet, even when we look at people who have higher incomes, so they have access to resources, there's still black-white differences in, in health outcomes. And now let's just say people who have more resources do better than people who have fewer resources. Black Americans have, as you've noted, fewer resources, so they get a double whammy. But even when you stratify by income, Black people do worse by health than white people do. And there's no biological reason, explanation. And of course, it's a social construct, so why would there be for that difference? What, how do you piece that together? What What do you see as the underlying mechanisms and, and how do we address it? Again, I'm not saying how do we address it for those with means, but as it, I'm just saying it's an observation to how pervasive these differences are. And they're not being driven simply by people's financial situation, although that contributes, as you noted, but it's even more than that. And how do we get at this? How do we start to make some progress? Absolutely. Now, this is one of my favorite questions, Harlan. So I mentioned to you guys over email that I'm giving a talk later today. Um, and it's a talk I give on this topic of pharmacoequity. And literally the fourth slide is a paper that you led, Harlan, with Emily Buchholz um, back in 2016. Um, that's that finding, this is a study that you guys looked at, um, income-based and race-based disparities in patients after they have a heart attack and whether they, what their life expectancy is. And that study showed that if you're black, whether you're in the highest socioeconomic status or the lowest, you are still more likely to have a lower life expectancy. 
And prior to seeing that study, so 2016, I was just finishing residency. I'd spent so much of my time thinking, you know, once we address these social determinants of health, we get patients access to care. I'm a primary care doctor working in a community-based clinic in East Boston. Like, this is what we need. We need to really think about these social um, factors and get patients the care that they need. And that study kind of rocked me in a way that personally I'm thinking, okay, you know, I quote unquote made it. I'm about to finish my medical training. I'm going to have access to income that I never had before. Why would I not think that I'm going to lead a healthy, long, uh, high quality of life? Um, So personally, that study struck me, but also I'm thinking about my patients and thinking about the fact that it's more than just the income. We can't just pay our way out of um, these disparities that we're talking about. And we really do have to address these root causes of racism. And I think that's individual-based racism. So um, a lot of conversations around patient-provider interactions and how that drives bias and treatment, um, really important studies published during that same year in 2016 in um, PNAS that looked at how false beliefs about black patients individuals versus white individuals leads to different treatment in terms of pain etc um so i think we have to address those those individual biases that still exist in our society but more importantly address some of these structures and systems in place address the fact that if you were black in a boston um, at the brigham and women's hospital and you had heart failure you were more likely to be admitted to the general medicine wards versus the specialized cardiology wards and what does that mean address the fact that we found in our study that if you're from an underrepresented um, ethnic background you're more likely to have your care in a resident-based clinic versus an attending-based clinic so these structures in place that i think are what cause the disparities that we're alluding to whether you have income or high socioeconomic status or not other than bias and other than access to care is really thinking about how racism impacts our bodies our physical bodies the higher rates of hypertension the higher rates of anxiety and depression Um, this is something that has been studied previously has not been kind of shouted from the rooftops prior to when we quote unquote discovered racism in 2020, as I sometimes um, sadly joke, but it's something that we need to continue to do deep research and science around. A lot of, uh, you know, the hope that comes out of this is that by illuminating the topic and educating people, we can start to correct some of the, uh, the disparities in the way we treat different populations. Uh, and I'm just wondering because you're you're number one, you're young. You've been recently in medical school residency fellowship and, and a junior faculty member now, but you also are deeply invested in medical education right now. And I'm just wondering what type of efforts you involved in, and do you have hope when you're involved in that that we're going to be able to address it at least partially that way? Yeah, it's a good question. I definitely have hope um, as a uh, pastor's kid as well as a physician's kid. Like I have to <laughs> lean into faith as something that um, keeps me going every single day. Um, otherwise, I just feel very hopeless. Um, and that's a lot of the conversations that we're having every day. Um, and second, I do have a lot of faith in the future generation. I don't think that we should put all the pressure and responsibility on the next generation to uh, to turn the tide. So, for example, we have a a medical education podcast called an anti-racism and medicine podcast. I'll give a little plug to our other pod for those listening to this one. But um, it's a a really wonderful um, series that we have kind of highlighting some of these themes that we've brought up. 
and really diving into the key structural barriers uh, of racism and health. Um, and this was started along with myself by five medical students who decided that enough was enough, that they weren't getting enough of that level of training in their, um, in their medical uh, school ex uh, experiences. And I think that it's been really powerful to work with them, to learn from them, to see how they're pushing the narrative um, and a narrative that's not just happening on podcasts, but is happening in medical school curricula. I'm here at the University of Pittsburgh, and we not only have a elective anti-racism in medicine course that I have the opportunity to teach with, along with my colleague, Dr. Scro, um, but we now have a second year course that is dedicated to teaching about the impact of race and racism on health. And that is a required course that every student who goes through our institution takes. And I think we're starting to see more of that around the country. Students are voting with their feet about where they're going to spend their 80,000 plus dollars a year, uh, depending on what school you go to. Uh, the US News and World Report now has a health equity metric on their uh, ranking list around schools. And so I am hopeful that not only is the generation going to move us forward, but that because of that, institutions are going to have to rebuild their curriculum to really focus on this topic as a key to improving health. And just to remind our listeners, it's it's called the Anti-Racism in Medicine podcast, just so they can look it up as well. Yeah, I just think and listen to you. We, we got to collaborate more. Uh, you know, there's just so much I want to learn from you and, and it'd be great to work together. Some of the work that we've done recently has been to show that over the last 20 years in the areas of health status, even and all a lot of the access issues and affordability issues, there has been not an iota of of uh, progress in going against these disparities. And when you look at health status, multiple morbidities, it, actually things are getting worse. Not only is the whole population getting sicker over time, despite all our investments in healthcare, but the distance between black and white Americans is actually growing. And, and the advances that we had made in mortality, there had been some narrowing in mortality you know, earlier in the last two decades, flattened and then worsened, not even counting the pandemic, which led to a great retrenchment. And you know, in the course of this time, I mean, I, look, this has been my career. I consider this a failure. I've written so many papers around disparities, tried to call to action so much, uh, so many of my colleagues, so much of the institutions around us. We are not making progress. I mean, Yale New Haven Hospital, Yale University in the New Haven, not an iota of progress. And so, you know, this I find this sobering and I'm, I really look to you wonder what do we need to do that that we're not doing now? Because what we've been doing is not working. It's just not working. And so, and by the way, Obamacare, great. You know, we did get a lot more people insured. It didn't make a dent in the disparities. And, and things, if anything, have gotten worse. I, I don't say that's because of Obamacare, but I'm just saying that policy intervention did not address the disparities. So what what are your thoughts? I mean, what should we do? Yeah, I mean, so I'm coming from it as uh, someone earlier in their career, like you mentioned, um, who kind of at every level hoped that the next big thing would help us get closer. So as a medical student, I thought I was going to be a dean of students. And I figured like educating around this topic, one of my uh, mentors, Christina Gonzalez, teaches around implicit bias training at um, then at the Albert Einstein, now at NYU. Um, and that felt like the path to like really teach our way out of this. Um, in residency, I think it was about clinical care, making sure that I was providing, along with my colleagues, the best care possible to underserved populations out in Chelsea, Massachusetts, uh, especially uh, Spanish-speaking immigrant patients 
patients. And then I came to a research fellowship and thought that, you know, studying our way out of this topic was going to be the way. And now as a, a faculty member, really thinking about the, the policy um, inter implications and interventions that you just uh, alluded to, Harlan. But I think all of that has been within the lane of healthcare. You know, I go to medical school, go to residency, work in a hospital, and healthcare feels like the way to solve it. You know, I didn't go through 12 years of training for nothing, right? Um, but I do think that in a way that that was myopic, that um, the investments that we're making in healthcare are huge. We're spending billions of dollars every single year to build great hospitals, to increase and improve medical education. Um, and to and for scientific discovery that made it possible for us to have incredible vaccines to reduce um, COVID infection, et cetera, and amongst other things. Um, but how do we really shift some of those investments outside of the hospital, shift those investments to early education where in, um, students in our communities are going to be able to choose careers like medicine, like the three of us, and um, be able to transform their lives and generations after them? How do we build the green spaces within our neighborhoods in New Haven, in the Bronx, where um, I spent so much of my career training um, so that people have healthier lungs, have healthier access to healthier streets where they can run on and stay fit on? Um, and Dr. Gina South at Penn is doing a lot of work in that space as well. Um, I, tr I firmly believe that shifting some of the resources that we have now in healthcare to outside of healthcare will help us start to create dents. But I do still think that we need to address some of the policies. Um, and so we improved access to insurance for millions of Americans over the last decade. Um, we didn't see a huge, huge shift in disparities. But what else could we do? What else, you know, how can we kind of um, influence, go beyond just access to insurance, but to improving uh, actual equitable care? Uh, and I'm hopeful that this phrase, pharmacal equity, though, it's, it's not a new idea and a new theme. It's just one of the ways that we can start to fix that part of the problem. Oh, that's really great. That's really great. You, you, you're an amazing person. You're educating us, educating our, our listeners, and, and having a huge impact on the field. And uh, it gives me a lot of optimism and hope. Uh, for the future. So thanks very much for joining us on the Health and Veritas podcast. Yeah, it's great to great to hear you. Great to see you again. And uh, Leah, I'm going to double down and bugging you about collaborating because, uh, you know, I think I want to work with you more if we can. Absolutely. No, thank you both so much for, for the invitation. And yes, you all heard it here first. Uh, Harlan and I have a future <laughs> paper <laughs> coming out soon, I'm, I hope. That'd be great. Hey, thanks. So Howie, that was a great Great interview with you, Tiv. I really appreciated that and appreciate him. But let's get to you now. So what's been on your mind this week? Yeah, so I'm, I'm going to bring it right back to our guest in a way, um, because we've been talking about diabetes on and off on the podcast several times, and we did so again today. We talked about the high cost of insulin, but there are, there's more than just therapies for diabetes. There's also the measurement of your glucose. And just to remind our listeners, Diabetes is a leading cause of mortality and morbidity. Uh, improving therapies for insulin-dependent diabetics are not the only means of impacting the disease because accurately measuring blood glucose levels and judiciously using insulin is incredibly important because it avoids high glucose levels, which affect your long-term morbidity and mortality. It also avoids hypoglycemia, where if you go too low, it can be life-threatening. So, Continuous glucose monitors are an important innovation that helps with this. 
but studies have not always confirmed their benefit. And the New England Journal today is reporting a randomized control trial of one type of continuous glucose monitoring device. And the results are impressive. The, the, the study used is the Freestyle Libre device um, to help insulin-dependent diabetics monitor their glucose rather than forcing them to stick their fingers, th fingers throughout the day. So why is this such a huge advance, first of all? Because finger sticks only tell you your blood glucose at a specific moment in time. In other words, are you 150 and declining? Are you 150 and rising? Is the decline steep or, or flat? You don't really know. But with continuous glucose monitoring, you not only get hundreds of data points throughout the day, but you also know directionality and the rate of rise or decline. And so what this study found was not only that patients had better control of their blood glucose, but also that they avoided events where their glucose could go too low. So let me put that aside because I think that alone is a really important thing, but I want to then move on to the health equity side of this. And it, it really does concern me. The product they study, studied is from Abbott. It's the cheaper and less convenient of the two widely available technologies. Uh, the Dexcom is continuous blood glucose monitoring where you don't have to, to intermittently check it. But even with this cheaper technology, the Abbott one, the Freestyle Libre, the cost is over $100 for 14 days without insurance. So over the course of a year, that's almost $3,000. Insulin and other expenses are not even a factor in the numbers I'm giving you here, so that adds on a lot more. So there's, there's good news out there in that if you look at the technology development in this space, there are abundant companies. I would hesitate to give you an absolute number because it's not my expertise, but I'm going to guess that there are dozens of companies that are competing to come up with cheaper and cheaper and more efficient blood glucose monitors, continuous ones. And those are starting to look like they can get down to $3 a day and even less than that. Um, but it comes back to the same issue that Atibe mentioned, which is even if you cap insulin, which is what we're begging for at $35 a month, that's still a lot of money for individuals. And if we were to cap, uh, even if we were to cap continuous glucose monitoring at another $35 a month, that's starting to add up. That's already almost $1,000 a year with insurance, even if you have insurance. So again, in the same way that he's looking at pharmacoequity, I think this is another area of pharmacoequity uh, that we're gonna be delving into in the future. And I'm hoping to see that technology helps us on this front by driving the price down on its own. Well, I'm really glad that you brought this up. I mean, first of all, these devices, I don't know if you've had a chance to use them. I don't have diabetes, but I've been able to test them out because, of course, my interest in digital health and so forth. And they are amazing. I mean, they provide you really interesting and actionable information if you've got diabetes. For people without diabetes, you can really see the effect of different meals or diets. You kind of follow it. We have yet to figure out whether all this data actually can help you make better decisions outside of diabetes. This trial is showing you that... Uh, you, you can, uh, you know, within the context of diabetes, actually produce better outcomes. And that's wonderful. I mean, we're in the midst of a life sciences revolution. We're in the midst of a data science and technology revolution. And yet we are, you know, we've already got these massive disparities. And I just am really appreciative of your point. We've got to be thinking hard about how, you know, the we can be sure that this isn't going to separate further, you know, people who can and cannot afford, people who do and do not have access to these uh, innovations. And 
And, you know, how about cancer therapies that cost hundreds of thousands of dollars? I mean, there's there's or more, you know, or, you know, as we know, Alexion was in our in our city for a long time as its central headquarters now just has an office. And, you know, they were they were charging seven hundred fifty thousand dollars for their medication. You know, these things are, <laughs> you know, they what what people would dream about, what they would make in a decade. Some people, you know, and and so uh, we've got to solve this. We've got to solve this. And th I think there's nothing short of, of it's got to be around how we're going to provide universal access for highly effective treatments and and really take this on head on. But uh, thanks so much for bringing that up. You've been listening to Health and Veritas with Harlan Kromholtz and Howie Foreman. So how did we do? To give us your feedback or to keep the conversation going, you can find us on Twitter. I'm at H-M-K-Y-A-L-E. That's H-M-K-Y-A-L. And I'm at the Howie. That's at T-H-E-H-O-W-I-E. You can also email us at health.veritas at yale.edu. Aside from Twitter and our podcast, I am fortunate to be the faculty director of the healthcare track and founder of the MBA for Executives program at the Yale School of Management. Feel free to reach out via email for more information on our innovative programs, or you can check out our website at som.yale.edu slash EMBA. You know, some people wonder if we do this fresh every week or whether or not this is just a, a you know, boilerplate recording that we just stick in every week. Hey, this is fresh. This is real. We do this every week. Health and Veritas and we're is better. And we're getting better. Health and, and, and well, just to prove it to you, just to prove it to you, the Yankees won the fifth game against the Cleveland Guardians. Oh, you know, just so people know. Thank goodness. That this is, yeah. this is real. We do this every week. Health and Veritas is produced with the Yale School of Management. Thanks to our researcher, Jenny Tan, and to our producer, Miranda Schaefer, who are terrific. Talk to you soon, Howie. Thanks very much, Harlan. Talk to you soon.